Welcome. You are listening to Sunday Afternoon Films with me, Christopher Windsor, part of the Iconochromatic Podcast Network. Before I begin, I will warn you, there will be spoilers about the film, so if you've not seen this before, I would recommend switching off, watching the film first, and then coming back and listening to this podcast. Other than that, enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to Sunday Afternoon Film with me, Christopher Windsor, and my co-host, Mike Larkin. Although, this isn't being recorded on a Sunday. It's being recorded on a Tuesday, which is special. Because it's the most romantic day of the year. It's Tuesday the 14th of February. It's Valentine's Day. That time of the year when you snuggle up to your loved one and you buy them cheap tat because you can't be bothered showing them that you love them at any other stage during the year, you cheap bastards. So on that note, let's talk about jolly films. What films are we here to talk about today, Mike? Well, Chris, we're here to talk about horror films. Yeah, we are! Because everybody knows that there's nothing better than, for foreplay than horror films. Oh, the truth is we go half to his stomach. <laughs> no, it's true, though, isn't it? I mean, I, I have heard that one of the best ways to actually, if you want to take someone from it for a date, is actually to a scary film, because it gets the endorphins running and all that sort of thing. It's not one of the sore films... I distinctly remember going to see, uh, I think it was Saw 2 with my friend Ruth. Um, it wasn't a date, we just went as friends. And the scene where she had to remove the eyeball to get the key, my friend Ruth covered her face with her hands and whispered to me, tell me when it's over. And in the middle of her putting the knife in, she said, I... I said, it's over. She removed her hands and then screamed like a little girl. And it was hilarious. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> so, where should we start on this? Okay, let, let's start from the beginning. Why do you love horror films? Why do you love horror so much, Mike? Um, I think it's that the sense of anticipation, the sense of the of unknown, of what's to come. Um, not knowing what's around the corner, unless you're watching a screen movie, in which case they kind of broadcast what's coming around the corner. Hmm. Uh, it's the sense of what's co- how are you going to top that? You know how how are you going to make you jump more, jump higher than that previous scare? Um, and the anticipation of it. I've I've always I mean I started watching movies at a ridiculously young age when, back in the nineteen eighties, which uh, kids today will probably only know from watching basically TV shows on Channel Five about a decade. <laughs> um, and possibly a long time ago when you know. You had to wait half an hour to rewind the film to watch it again. Yeah. Uh, there was no instant replay, kids. We had to do everything. We had to wait for things. And we had to go out to the shops and buy them. Or rent them. So what would be the first horror film that you think you ever saw? 
don't know what the first horror film I saw um, was. I remember the first one I remember was Fright Night. Right, okay. And what was that about? Tell us about that. Um, basically, um, I'm trying to remember the plot. Uh, it's a bit of America. It's kind of a teenage kid has a new neighbour moving next door. He's a big horror fan and becomes obsessed with the idea that his neighbour is a vampire. Okay. Of course, everyone uh, kind of dismisses him as being a bit ridiculous, which of course it is, until it turns out the neighbour actually is a vampire. Okay. Um, and basically, that's, that's the story in, in and of itself. Is and he ha- he hires this kind of TV show host who profess- professes himself to be a famous vampire hunter who actually is a bit is a bit of a coward because of course he's only ever played a vampire hunter on the screen he's never actually en- encountered a real life vampire mainly because there are no such thing and um, they're real. I've been in the swan. Okay. <laughs> that's not that's not vampirism. That's just bad lighting. <laughs> but um, but yeah, basically that's it in a nutshell. And I mean, I've I've probably seen other films that could have been classified as horror before that. You know, the likes of the Terminator. Yeah. Um, but that's the first true horror film I think that I saw. I can't remember the first horror film that I necessarily saw, because to be honest with you, I remember growing up as a kid, um, I was incredibly sensitive as a child. I used to have really bad nightmares, and despite having never seen to this day it or Child's Play, I still do not want to watch those films, because they still scare me something rotten. Um, I don't know why Child's Play scares me so much, because... In reality, what you have is a, what, two-foot doll, three-foot doll that you can yeah. quite easily run away from and kick in the face, and it probably wouldn't do an awful lot anyway. So, really, why am I so scared of this small doll that's running around with a knife? And yet, something inside me still says, I do not want to watch this film. The same with It. Clowns don't scare me so much anymore, but I can get why people are still scared of them. Um, so, I mean, what did did you you've seen it, haven't you? I know you're a fan of Stephen King in general. Um, I'm, I'm, I was the number one fan. <laughs> to to quote one of his own line, one of his own movies. Uh, yeah, I'm a massive Stephen King fan. I I love the guy. I love. Love his work and especially his modern work. His modern work is some of the most, some of the scariest things I've ever read. Um, and King was kind of really my big introduction to horror because I was very lucky in that I had very trusting parents. Right. Who let me get a an adult library card when I was when I was still in primary school. Um. So, I think it was probably what 
if not the first, one of the first books that I ever read. You know, that didn't contain Asterix or Obelix or Tintin. No. It certainly wasn't family-friendly, that's for sure. Uh, and people people say, you know, it's the you know, scariest film I've ever seen. If you want to read the book, mate, the book will have you shitting your kicks. <laughs> more than a film ever will. Because the book, the book is a lot more visceral. I mean, the thing with it is that I love the fact that Tim Curry plays it because one of my favourite films growing up as a child and still to this day is Clue. So seeing Tim Curry running around as this manic butler to be one of the scariest figures of of the genre, to be honest with you, is kind of amusing to me. Yeah, and I mean this this was a one shot thing as well. It's not like it was it's not like Pennywise is a recurring character in the way that Freddy or Jason are. He played them once and has kind of indelibly ingrained himself into the minds of horror fans. Very much as, so. Uh, I think that for me is is a big thing of the performance. In in that he has done managed to do that in just one in just one film has stuck in the minds of so many people as um, being this Yeah. Sorry, carry on, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, sorry. I uh, I mean Tim Curry, I don't know if you've heard this, but this is direct pretty much from the from the mouth of uh, Mark Hamill. Um Tim Curry was originally cast as the Joker in the animated series. Oh god. And they had to recast them with Mark Hamill because his performance was t- too scary. <laughs> his voice performance of the Joker was too scary. So the, the that's that's why Mark Hamill ended up getting the gig. Right. I've I don't know if you've heard any Mark Hamill stuff as the Joker, but Mark Hamill was scary as the Joker dude. I can't say I've ever seen that, although I'm intrigued to look it up now. So let's talk about some of the big hitters that we all that we're all aware of. You know, obviously we've got um, we've got Michael Myers from the Halloween series. Um, we've got Freddy Krueger from the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Uh, we've got Jason Voorhees from the uh, Friday the Thirteenth um, franchise. Um, we've got Leatherface, who was basically the main role in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but to be fair, that film has an entire family of scary people in their own right. Um, Let's see, you've got Jigsaw from the Saw franchise, you've got Hannibal Lecter from uh, the Silence of the Lamb um, series of films, and you've got others who were slightly less scary, but were still nonetheless there. Um, when when I say that, um, I think of films like um, Ed Gein. Um, I think of people um, like John Wayne Gacy. You know, th- those sort of characters. I mean, I think the difference between the Ed Gein and the John Wayne Gacy film is that they were basically just normal people especially Ed Gein, you know, he was seen as this kook who really didn't, you know, he he was just this lovable kook to people who didn't suspect him of doing anything wrong. And 
John Wayne Gacy, as nuts as he was, I think he was seen as this friendly guy who just well, happened fam- to have a few a few screws loose. No, no, John, John, he was actually seen as a very respectful stand-up person. Um, very respected, John Wayne Gacy, and it came as a complete shock to everyone. I mean, have you have you seen Dear Mr. Gacy? Um, that's the film about. I'm not. Is that the guy, the guy who writes to him in prison? Yeah, it's based on a on a real book. Um, called oh god, it was like the 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 last at uh, the last victim. I think it was called the last victim, and basically for people who haven't seen it. It's about the lead character, whose name completely escapes me, who is studying criminology in university, and he that's, decides that's, that he wants to develop some. Sorry, I don't think that's John Wayne Gacy. Just to just to interrupt there, that's a different serial killer that you're thinking of. Yeah. It's not John Wayne Gacy, but it's along those. It is an American serial killer. I know the film you're talking about because I watched it not long back. And um. And he kind of gets inside the mind of this young college kid who's writing his, his thesis on on serial killers to, to try and impress the FBI to become a criminal profiler. Um, and, yeah, and basically the the whole, not, not to give the plot away, but, um, you know, at least not to give the plot away too much, the kid develops this relationship with John Wayne Gacy where he's writing letters to him on a weekly basis and he's like, oh, you know, I can control John Wayne Gacy. I'm I'm the one that's got the power here. And he ends up going into the prison to see John Wayne and ends up getting a bit too close to John Wayne Gacy in a way that the security team really did a very bad job. Um, and like yeah, you say, I think John Wayne rather like, you know, going back to Red Gein, was very much respectable. Um, in terms of other horror characters that I... Gein was the guy everyone said. We knew there was something wrong there. We just didn't know what it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Ed Gein was actually the, the person that Hitchcock based his character on for Psycho. Very much so, I, and I can see why Hitchcock would use that, would use him as a character. To be honest, I, I can completely understand that, and um, I, I think I've heard it said that you know a lot of a lot of horror characters were they they took elements of Ed Gein and developed yeah. them into their own characters in their own rights. You look at Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill is very much Ed Gein. Uh, you know, from oh, yeah, I mean that—that's the interesting thing. Let, let's talk about Silence of the Lambs, you know, because obviously the main protagonist that you've got within um, Silence of the Lambs is Hannibal Lecter, but really, he's not the bad guy in the film, and yet Buffalo Bill is—he's. Would you agree that he's almost secondary in Silence of the Lambs? Yeah. I I definitely agree. Um, people overlook Buffalo Bill as the, as the villain. In that movie, and uh, do you think do you think Hannibal Lecter is the, the bad guy? And um, I think that stands as testament to ha- Anthony Hopkins' performance. I couldn't it, imagine anyone else playing 
Hannibal Lecter than Anthony Hopkins. You know. I mean, it's the role originally to actually with uh, with Brian Cox. Oh, because he was in Manhunter, wasn't he? He was in Manhunter. Um, so it it. You say that you can't imagine anyone else. I mean, I imagine he couldn't imagine anyone else at the time. But I think it stands a testament to Anthony Hopkins' brilliant performance that he was in it for all of, I think, five minutes and walked away with a best, best actor, actor statue. Not best supporting actor, best actor at the Oscars. I would for, say that he was the best, you know... I, I, I mean, as, as as good as Jodie Foster was, um, as Starling, I really think Anthony Hopkins... You know, it, it's... I said this to a friend in work the other week. As good as Jodie Foster is in this film, and she is very good in Science of the Lambs, I think she could have been quite easily replaced. Whereas, she... I couldn't imagine anyone else playing Hannibal Lecter in Science of the Lambs. Yeah, I, I mean... I've I've seen obviously interviews about this movie and you know heard things about it and kind of a lot of the things that stand out to us are scary. Kind of Anthony Hopkins did as a joke. You know the the father where he says I says live with father beans and a nice candy and then sucks his lips. <laughs> he did that as a joke to try and to try and alleviate the mood. <laughs> I mean, something that creepy being a joke, it, it kind of beggars belief, but that's the true story behind it. He just did it as, as a throwaway thing, not intending it to be in the movie, but to kind of get a laugh out of everyone, and it, it terrified the people on set. I'm not surprised. It terrified me. It still does. You know, it, it's one of those, um, you know, it's, it's up there with, the great lines of cinema history and it's there for a reason it's it's terrifying it's horrible it's it's this character that you cannot truly understand why he's doing what he's doing or indeed you know he is charming he's lovable he's 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 very upstanding yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a he's a he's a gentleman killer. Very I'm, much so, yes. Um, you know, he's he he's as you say, he's he's intelligent, he's educated, highly highly educated. You know, he um he he was a psychologist or a psychiatrist, one of the two. Um, so he very much understands people. I think that's what makes him such an effective character, is that he does understand people. He understands what makes people work. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, looking into, you know, there's obviously many different genres uh, within the horror franchise itself. So let, let's let's have a look at some of the let's have a look at some of the slasher fr- um, franchises for a minute. Um, okay, out of say, Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street, because let's face it, you know, they they are the big three, you know. Oh, yeah. They, they, they are the three films that if you consider yourself to be a fan of horror, you have to have seen at least once, you know. 
Uh, never, let's not talk about the sequels too much because frankly I didn't think much of them I think the only sequel that I saw that was of any merit in comparison to the films here and nightmare. you probably will yeah it was New Nightmare yeah um, I my my three my three was of the three and I'll hold my hands off just because because I fell in love with them as a kid it was the, the Nightmare on Street movies what, what made um, you fall in love with them? I think it, I think it was Robert England, mm. just his performance. Um, I, as a kid, I'd grown up watching. I don't know if you remember the series V. I never saw it. I've heard of it, but I never saw it. Well, Robert England was in that and playing one of the aliens, but a very affable kind of lovable alien. Um, who was on the side of the humans, trying to help the humans. And he was really the standout role in that series for me. And so to see him go from this, you know, lovable, goofy kind of alien character to being one of the scariest, you know, badass motherfuckers on the screen with this sick these six-inch long blades on his fingers was an amazing transformation for me. I And one that I still can't quite get my head around, how this guy can go from being such a nice, nice person in one role to being basically a, a child-killing paedophile um, and in, in another and still have people love him. Yeah, he, he he did become very much this pop icon, didn't he? Um, it, it, it almost seems laughable at these days, you know, these characters were so scary 20 years ago to the point where they became lovable rogues, where you can now buy pop figures of them in... Um, comic book Thank stores that I can't remember the name of because I don't go to such places. Um, <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, for, for me, I've got to say, if, if I was to make a choice, I would have to say Halloween because I think the Michael Myers character was, I think he was more interesting than Freddy Krueger or indeed um, Mrs. Voorhees or Jason Voorhees as they continued down the Friday the 13 franchise. Because he was a character that you simply had no understanding of. You couldn't understand him. He never spoke. He was very meticulous in what he did. He was very slow. He he was just a character that I think you you couldn't understand him you couldn't reason with him you couldn't rationalize um the the michael myers character and i think that's why he stands out to me as as one of the best ones i mean um oh, it's a guy in a william shatner mask it is indeed it is, it is a william shatner mask turned inside out um and... uh, i mean for me i think i think i I like a bit of character in my uh, in my horror icons, mm. and for me, Michael Myers was a bit of a 
he was just this a silent brood in the lung who would always catch you. No matter how fast he ran. Let's face it, the guy was always he's McDonald's. No matter where you go, he's there. <laughs> um I it's, it's like you know, the, the guy kind of defies belief in that he just plods along very slowly and somehow he's always there. When He's always around the corner. Yeah. And you go, that bullshit, she's just ran five miles. And he's kind of plodded along, just do-do-do-do, and ended up beating her to where she's going. Without, despite the fact that she had no idea where she was headed, he's he's there. How he is very happen? much the boogeyman. Oh, uh, we'll get on to that because uh, we'll talk about our, I think our favourite boogeyman <laughs> in a bit. Um, but yeah, for me, Michael Myers was a bit kind of one-dimensional, and don't be wrong, I love John Carpenter. Absolutely love him. And for me, my favourite Carpenter horror has to be The Thing. I've not seen The Thing in a very long time, but I remember it vaguely. I think I think everyone who's seen it remembers it. <laughs> um, and I actually I actually had the honour of watching this not long back with my uh, my stepson. For the he hadn't he'd never seen it. And. He he was marvelling at the you know the practical effects in the movie, and um, and said you know it, you'd never guess this this film was nearly it was forty years old, uh, and he actually thought he actually thought it was better than a lot of the, the modern horror movies, which it is. I love the fact that he said that. That I think that says a lot. Really, I mean, you know, in in a world where the genre has become so saturated and has become so over the top, you know, it's it it's almost. I think I, I think for him, what what made it stand out was it wasn't one jump scare after another after another. Yeah. The way the way the modern genre has become. And you are literally just waiting for the next jump scare to see what happens. Yeah. Um, the thing is, if you've never seen the thing, I'd recommend go out and watch it. It's a very different movie. It's all atmosphere. That's that's what makes the movie what it is. Is the atmosphere, the sense of foreboding behind it, and not knowing. It's, and it's not a film that's big on jump scares. In fact, I, I can't think of any scene that has a jump scare, but it's effective at what it does. And... I mean, for, for me, the two best horror films I've seen, um, certainly in a long time, were released last year um, in The Witch and Green Room. Um, and they're very different films. Um, for... Is Eli Roth, isn't he? I'm sorry? Green Room, isn't that Eli Roth? Uh, I don't think it was. Let me find out the director of Green Room. I don't believe that it was, though. Uh, let me just check that. 
Oh no! I know the one you mean, Patrick Stevenson. Eh? Uh, that's right. Yeah, it was directed by somebody named Jeremy Salina, and I'm probably butchering his name. Um, yes, it has got um, it has got that Patrick Stewart fellow who pilots the Millennium Falcon and defeats the Jedi or something. Um, and to be fair, he's very good at it. And um, when I first saw um, Green Room. I didn't even know that Pat. I I, for, I think I forgot that Patrick Stewart was even in it, and without you know not being a massive Stargate fan, I didn't really care for Patrick Stewart that much. But when he came on the scene, and it was like, that's Captain Kirk. What what the hell was it? Oh, I'm saying oh, that was he was he actually, better than that. Was he Captain Kirk? No, it was Captain it was Picard, wasn't it? Captain Picard, that was it. Yeah, it's like my God, that's Captain Picard, and he's this, 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 this nutter neo-Nazi who is. Oh my God, it was Green Inferno. Ah, okay. Uh, not seen that. I've got to say. Well, okay. To give a brief, uh, to give a brief synopsis then on Green Room very quickly. Basically, it's about this band who are booked to go to a compound in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there's this, there's this, uh, this underground punk band um, who were very much like, um, uh, you know, the Dead Kennedys, um, Pennywise, um, that, those, those sort of bands, you know, anti-establishment, anti-everything, anti effectively. They're almost nihilists. And they end up in this compound full of neo-Nazis. And the first thing they play is a song by the Dead Kennedys of Nazi Bastards Must Die. Or I think I think that was the track of it or something. Or, or Nazi Bastards Fuck Nazi Bastards Fuck Off. Or something along those lines. Which gets a wonderful, as you can imagine, reception from these bunch of skinheads who are standing around watching them. And then when they go back to uh, to the green room, there is a uh, there's a killing, and they're basically told, "Look, we're not keeping you here. We're not keeping you as our captors, but we're not going to let you go either. You you just have to stay here for a while, and then we promise we'll let you go." And there's just this tension all the way through the film of how are they going to get out? You know. Are they going to get out? Are they going to be alive? Are they going to be maimed? What is going to happen? And I was gripped for the entire film. If somebody says that to me, the first thing I'm thinking is, they're not going to let me out. Exactly, exactly. They're not going anywhere. And they know they're not going anywhere. Um, and honestly, I couldn't, I really couldn't recommend Green Room enough. I think it's... I think it's wonderfully made. It's just, it's just wonderful. And the other horror film that I saw this year um, was the aforementioned Witch, Witch or The Witch, um, which was about a family living in, I believe it was the eighteen hundreds America, who get um, kicked out of their um, home village. They have to move to somewhere else. They end up in the middle of the woods. They, um, there's a scene where a child goes missing. They believe there's a witch out there who stole the child. There is a a goat that is named just that is named Black Philip that they believe is the devil, and it's just, it's it's uncomfortable, I think, for the entire film. And yet, to some, they wouldn't find it uncomfortable, and I think they kind of missed the point. I was speaking to my dad about the witch 
um, a couple a couple of months ago, and I was saying there's this character called Black Philip who's a goat, and they're all like Black Philip, Black Philip, ah! and he just thought it was funny, and it's like you you just you're completely missing the point. Um, we discussed this on Icon Iconochromatic, me and Derek, and we both said the goat was terrifying. There was something very creepy and very unnerving about this goat. Couldn't tell you why, but there was. And rounding off this year's horror films, because there weren't that many, but there was one big one, and I don't know if you saw it, but I know, I'm fairly certain you enjoyed the original. Did you see The Blair Witch Project? I didn't... Uh... Sorry, not Blair Witch Project. Sorry, the Blair Witch. I have to be very careful there. It wasn't the Blair Witch Project. It was just Blair Witch. Did you see Blair Witch? I didn't. Uh, con conversely, because I know you love Blair... I know you love the original Blair Witch. I was never a fan. Mm. Um, I kind of caught on to it being a publicity stunt before it was officially announced. That it was all stunned and it was all set up. And don't get me wrong, I did, sorry, I... sorry, Mike, could I just pause for a second? Sorry, just two seconds. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Hi, Mike. All right. Sorry about that. For viewers wondering where I was, I've just had a cooker delivered to me. Yay! I've got a new cooker. Anyway, uh, yes, Blair Witch Project. Um, you said that you weren't really into the original film itself. Would that be correct? That's right. Um, I I did give it a chance. I always. I'll give any movie a chance, uh, no matter what I've heard. Um, if the critics are saying great things about it, then for me, it's it's generally going to be a good sign. Um, if the critics are saying bad things about it, then for me, it's going to be an even better thing. Right. But generally, for me, you know, I can watch a movie critic and go, yeah, you're talking shite. I um, think, for me, personally, the Blair Witch Project is and was a very misunderstood film. Now, apologise, apologies from the very beginning here. I'm gonna put my snobby film hat critic on. I remember watching this with a couple of friends, and they weren't terrified of it in the least. They thought it was stupid. They didn't. They didn't get the ending. They thought it was stupid, and I said to them. Do you understand what happened there? Do you understand what that was about? And they were like, well, yeah, there was some stupid witch and, you know, it was a witch. And I said, you've completely missed the point. And they said, no, we haven't. I said, you have. And they said, okay, you tell me, what was the Blair Witch Project about? I said, there was no witch to begin with. There was some sick, twisted asshole living in the middle of a forest killing children because he felt because he was sick and twisted and that's what that was what was terrifying about that film to begin with yeah no i i mean that i did get i did understand that of course oh, you, you, you you're you're an educated film critic but um i just i, I couldn't bring myself to enjoy in what sense I, in that, it, it just seemed very, I don't, I don't know how to put this, poorly put together. Right. I mean, I understand, you know, the fact that the crew, the, you know, the cast, were, weren't really in on the gag. Hmm. 
they weren't really told what was going to happen until it happened. Yeah. And then it was only kind of, right, don't tell anyone, but we're going to kill you in the movie. Mm. But none of your castmates know. I understand that's a big part of the, the effectiveness, is that the, the cast were genuinely scared. But for me, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't work myself up to being scared because, as I say, it already caught on to the fact that it was all a setup. It was all a massive publicity stunt. And long before it had been announced that it was all, you know, it was just a movie, I was going, there's, there's no way this has happened. If this had happened, the FBI would be would have that safe. Yeah. And would release it to the public. Let's and, face it. And and also, isn't it a bit strange that somehow they managed to find all these tapes and put them together and edit them into a into a way that told a that told a conclusive story? Isn't it handy that none of the tapes in some way got messed up because let's face it we're not talking about digital SD cards we're talking about VHS which again if you're a child of the 80s you know how bad the VH te- VHS tapes were you know they, they were using DAT tapes they were using hi A tapes exactly they're not going to stand up to a, w- a winter in you know in the midwest certainly not certainly not I mean you know no, it, it's it's, it's bad enough it's bad enough trying to use VHS tapes in a home, let alone in the middle of a forest. But Blair Witch, the new film, I wouldn't even recommend going anywhere near it, my friends. I don't want to give too much away from it. But honestly, it there was so many holes in it. There was so much wrong with it. It was just... I'm not even sure what the point or what the end of it even was. I get the feeling there were aliens somewhere involved. There was time travel involved in some way. There was some kind of abduction involved in in some way. And it's just... It's not strange in a good way. It's just strange. I think think what they might be trying to do is kind of cash in on the name and the infamy. The the original... Because to be fair, the minute I heard it came, it was coming out. I wanted to be there, so in that sense, it worked, and fair play to it for doing that. It got it got its market back. It got me, you know, back in that seat to watch that film and get excited about it all over again. Um, going back to the slasher films of the mid eighties, um, of the likes of Friday the Thirteenth that we've already mentioned. And moving on slightly to the uh, to the nineties, when there was a slew of horror films, and I'm not even going to try and cover them because you know as well as I do, Mike, there were just so many. It's difficult to keep up. Oh, one release every week, mate. Indeed, but one film that I think really revitalised the franchise in general is Scream. What did you think of Scream the first time you saw it? I I actually I I love the Scream franchise. Um, even, all all I've seen all four movies. Really enjoyed them. Went to see the second movie in the cinema uh, with some some work colleagues and ended up being terrified when the girl sat next to me screamed at one point. I'm not surprised. Um, 
I re- really enjoyed the franchise as a whole, and as you say, really, it was a breath of fresh air into the genre that reinvented it. And of course, who else but the, but the, the master of the craft, Wes Craven, to bring us this movie? Nobody else could have brought, could have done Scream and done it so tongue in cheek and yet so sincerely. Absolutely. And what amazed me at the time of seeing Scream was not only Wes Craven, but the writer of Scream, and I believe went on to write, um, I know what you did last summer. Can you remember the writer of Scream? Kevin Williamson. That's right. And what else has Kevin Williamson done that was fairly big? He he did he did write and know what he did last summer. I'm just going to bring him up now. Oh, no 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 no! I don't want you to look. If you can't guess it, then you're never going to guess it. It was a TV program. Um, Dawson's Creek. Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek. Yeah. You shit. Kevin Williamson wrote Dawson's Creek, one of my favourite TV shows of all time. <laughs> Oh, that I didn't know. He he wrote this. He wrote the first, the second, and I believe he came back for part of the sixth season. Um, he kind of he, he disappeared. He disappeared from the show between um, seasons three to five, which weren't the best seasons of TV they ever produced. But yep, the man who brought you Scream brought you Dawson's Creek. He also brought us the faculty. That was a good film. I, I, I love the faculty. Yes, I think it's a great film, great little film. I mean, and people forget um, directed by one of my favourite directors, Robert Rodriguez. And I know that Ryan Philippi, he takes all the peace, um, is, well, he's not disliked, but he's not exactly one of those mainstream actors either, really, is he? I mean, the only thing that, the only other things that I've seen Ryan Philippi in was. Um, uh, cruel intentions and um, antitrust, but that was about yeah. all I've seen Ryan Philippe in. To be honest with you, I think that's all Ryan Philippe has seen Ryan Philippe in. <laughs> to be honest, and, um, and and oh, and and also of course Ryan Philippe. I'm sure was he not one of the lead actors in I Know What You Did Last Summer? I think he was, but he was never gonna be kind of a marquee name. I don't think he. I mean, it's wrong. he yeah. had a very particular appeal for certain members of the female audience. Very much so, but yeah. I mean, was a very, I mean, that was a very limited appeal, and that was only ever going to last. What I love the most about um, uh, Friday the 13th, sorry, not Friday the 13th, um, I know what you did last summer, because I just happened to catch it the other, uh, a while ago, and it had um, Johnny Galecki in it. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, um, for those of you who don't watch it, plays Leonard in The Big Bang Theory. But in, uh, but in um, I Know What You Did Last Summer, he played a bully. And the weakest bully in the world. It was like, how could you possibly be threatened by Johnny Galecki? You know, why on earth would you be terrified? Why would Ryan Philippe and the other lead protagonist in this film have any reason to be afraid of Johnny Galecki? It, yeah, you know? he does have, have mob ties with that, with that surname. <laughs> that, that could be the reason. That's possibly it. That's that's possibly, that's yeah, possibly where it came from. Shoot you in the kneecaps. 
<laughs> but moving away from that god awful shite, right, frankly, that um, I know what the last summer was. Let's go back to the Scream films because they were such good films. I didn't think much of Scream Three, but Scream One and Two were glorious films, and Scream Four I think was a very good return to form um, in the Scream franchise. Um, Scream. I'm personally, quite sad that we'll not get any more Scream movies. Certainly not helmed by by Wes Craven. To be honest with you, I'm not sure I want to see anymore. I think they did a good enough job of closing the books of Scream and the Scream franchise in general with Scream 4. Um, you know... Um, to be honest... Sorry? I thought that after every movie that that was the end. Yeah. You know, that, where are they going to go from here? And did that surprise me? I mean, I, I remember the disappointment of Scream 3 after Scream 2. Because Scream 2 was... I don't think it was as good as the original Scream, but I thought Scream 2 was wonderful. If, if only for the end scene between um, Neve Campbell and uh, Timothy Oliphant. Was it, it was Timothy Oliphant, I'm sure of it. Um, it was. And what a great actor he is. He was, and he was one of the best things he can got in 60 seconds. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the, the face-off between Timothy Oliphant and Neve Campbell is just... It's just gorgeous. It's just... Oh, honestly, the, the, the line... I want to look it up now, because it is such a good series of dialogue. Um, bear with me a moment here, because it was such... It was so wonderful. This is how this is how prepared we are today, folks. Um, here we go, get in there, get in there, get in there. Come on. I think what one of my favourite lines in the movie is a uh, obviously you know the killer asks what is your what's your favourite scary movie? Hmm. Randy, the character, <laughs> and to showgirls. Absolutely frightening. What's yours? Randy was such a wonderful character. He really was. And I don't know if they shouldn't have killed him off when they did. But, you know... Um... I mean... We're going, we're going to say that Randy should have lived. Sorry, two Randy. seconds, Mike. Sorry, what was your moment? Sorry. Just... So, yeah, the uh, the Randy character, you uh, you loved him quite a lot from what you were saying. I think, I think we both liked Randy because basically... Uh, he's us. Very much so. <laughs> so I think that's probably why we thought he should have been killed off. And I felt a little bit cheated when they actually did kill him off. I, I agree. I mean, for, for me, uh, you know, I did love the uh, the Mickey character. Uh, let me just try and find the, the discussion between him. Is it... Um... He says you really should deal with your issues, Sid. Yes, and it's just so wonderfully performed, and and also and also the the, the discussion between um the discussion between Debbie Debbie Salt and Sydney is wonderful. You know, she said everything's traceable back to Missy, including the cop gun he used to kill everybody. But let's suppose that you got in hold of the other cop's gun and you chased Mickey, and there was a big shootout and a big scuffle, and you shot Mickey. Um, killed Mickey dead, but not before I got one shot of you. Okay, so have I got everything covered? Are there any questions, any comments? 
You know what, though? Who gives a flying fuck anyway? Let them try and track down the second possible killer. Debbie Salt doesn't even exist. And there's just so much venom behind her voice. And she's she's just wonderful. She really is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this is what I, I need to go back and rewatch it. And I've already got a couple of films to watch after, after your reviews earlier of, uh, of Green Room and The Witch. Yeah. Um, um, what but it, it's a film I need to revisit because I've not seen it in quite a long time. Did you find Scream Free to be a disappointment? Because I know I did. It, it was a disappointment in that it didn't really stand up well with the others. I think Wes Craven did, did the right thing in kind of backing off the series after that and letting it. Kind of he, he wasn't even involved, was it? He, he he bowed out after number two. No, he directed he directed all the films. Did he? Yeah. Maybe it was because maybe it was Kevin Williamson that wasn't involved in Scream Three. He was cre- he was credited for Scream Two as characters by. Um, or it was just Jeff, Oh God, he did Williams- direct him. Oh, that's really depressing now. Because I thought Wes Craven had nothing to do with it, and that was why it was so bad. No, um, Scream 3 wasn't written by Williamson. Right. And that could be what it is. Yeah. Uh, it was, he got the character's credit, obviously created by. But it, it was Wes Craven that directed all the Scream films. And I think where you're getting confused there is obviously... Going back to Wes Craven's 80s career, um, he obviously directed the first Nightmare movie. And then, yeah. For the second movie, he got a producer's credit and characters by, and then kind of walked away after that because he didn't think they should continue the series, Um, and then left it alone until obviously the 1990s when. For one of my favorite genre, genre films, uh, New Nightmare, great came film. Along. Great film. Um, I mean, I, I think the problem that I had with Scream Three, and I do want to talk about New Nightmare in just a moment. I think the thing about Scream Three was in Scream One, it was you could have worked out who the killers were. In Scream Two, you possibly wouldn't have been able to figure out who the killers were, but at least it was plausible. Scream Four, tentative. At least it made a certain amount of sense. Scream free. Where the hell did that come from? That the, the long lost brother. Oh, I didn't get attention. Mummy didn't love me as much, so I decided to become a serial killer. And then I shut up, you yeah, fucking moron. I hate you. You deserve to die a horrible death, Roman. And I have no sympathy for you. Go away. I don't want you in the franchise anymore. And honestly, when he died, it was like, you know what? Bring it on. I hope it hurt. Because you're not good. You're never going to be good. And it annoyed me something rotten. It really did. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the film now. And it's... I obviously remember, I remember the, the whiny long-lost brother. But yeah. that pretty much all remember of the movie. I think that's about all anyone remembers apart from you know what 
I think that's about all anyone does remember, to be perfectly honest with you. I think that's about it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the Scream franchise, it was important. It was. But not nearly as important as the film that we just spoke of a few moments ago in New Nightmare. Because New Nightmare, and I'm not going to take credit for saying this, this isn't an original, this isn't an original thought or an original quote on my part, was Wes Craven trying on the shoes for creating the Scream franchise and doing it very well. Bringing the Nightmare franchise into the 20th century and saying, Freddy's back, real. welcome. Not only into the 20th, 20th century, but into real life. Very much so, yes. And one story I heard, and this was years ago, I don't know how much truth or credence there is to it, but one story I've heard about the creation of, of New Nightmare is that the, cat, the, the actors themselves wanted to make this movie because they were all having... And we're talking about, you know, not just Nancy Langenkamp, but also... Uh, Robert England as well. Mm. We're all having very vivid nightmares involving Freddy Krueger. I, I I love the line in New Nightmare where um, the the female name whose name I just can't remember. I do apologise. Um, calls Robert and calls Robert rather and says, "You know, I've been having nightmares about Freddy. It's, You've been having nightmares about Freddy Krueger, as in me." And she's like, "No." It's not you. It's it's cruel. It's 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 darker, and it's just yeah. yeah. But just God, again, yeah, they were all having these really vivid nightmares, and kind of went to Wes Craven and found out he, because obviously the Freddy character was based on a dream he used to have as a kid. Oh, with the guy looking up into his window. Yeah. Now. What he wanted to do was definitively, for the final time, um, for their own closure, kill off Freddy Krueger. So what and then a... they made Freddy vs. Jason. Yeah, which, yeah. But anyway, they, they kind of thought, well, what's, what's the best way we can do that? Let's bring him into real life, into, into kind of our real lives. Yeah, um, yeah kill him that way so that's what they did is is to finally lay him to rest for their minds at least um, and I say I don't know how much truth there is to that story but that, that's the version of it I heard I can that... believe it because I mean the original Nightmare was based on a true story of um, soldiers who had been suffering from PTSD who obviously weren't you know, they weren't having Freddy Krueger visiting them in, in the middle of the night, but were having nightmares of being in the war, and it was causing them to die in their sleep because of the memories that they had. There were, there were a few a few sources for it. One was, as you say, the, the soldiers. Another was a group of teenage kids who were all having the same recurring dream, and they all described, you know, exactly the same dream. Who were dying in their sleep, and this happened back in the back in the sixties, I think, sixties or seventies. And then it was Wes Craven drawing from a couple of real life um, 
inspirations, if you will. Um, I think one was a creepy janitor, something like that. Yeah. Um, and the name was actually taken from, I think it was a high school bully of Craven's. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, I The thing with New Nightmare is it doesn't seem to get as much traction as a lot of the newer films that we have these days. I mean, let's face it, I think the slasher genre is basically dead again, sadly. It will probably make a, it'll probably make a reoccurrence, but it is effectively dead because it has now been replaced with a whole new genre called torture porn, or at least a different type of name, thanks to the lovely film, thanks to mainly Saw. So, do you want to start off with? Uh, do you want to start us off talking about Saw, Mike? Because again, I'm fairly certain it's a film that you did enjoy, and I'm, I think we both enjoyed the original Saw. I really, I really did enjoy the original Saw because I thought it was just so full of tension, and you didn't know what quite what was going to happen, or you didn't even know why these characters were in this room, why things were happening the way they were, and it was kind of a standout for me in that Carrie Elvis, who's just a he's a fantastic comedic actor and. People might know him best from, um, from the Princess Prince. or Robin Hood Men in Sights. <laughs> you know, fantastic comedic actor, and this was really the first film I'd ever seen him in, where he's tackling a, a meaty, dramatic role. Uh, I've got to say though, he came across as so weak. He really did when he was on the phone to Jigsaw. And you know he's like, my God, you've got my wife and you've got my child. It's just like, oh God, I think, try, I think, try and act. I think he's meant to come across that way, though. Um, I, 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 I hope so because I've got faith in the man as an actor. <laughs> um, and you know, again, I really enjoy this performance in this in this movie because um, it really surprised me that he would take on. After being known for for kind of family friendly comedies, yeah, yeah, for so long, you know, for playing the dashing hero, to suddenly be chained up in a basement and a bit of a sleazy character, we find out in the so. end. Yeah, what was he doing uh, with that pen light? Yeah, you don't want to know. <laughs> I, um, I think the thing we saw is. Again, rather like Blair Witch Project, is what got Saw the reputation that it did really was the marketing and the advertising. I still remember seeing one of the earliest advertisements for Saw and that famous line, he doesn't want us to cut through the chains, he wants us to cut through our feet. Now, in reality... If those chains couldn't make it through metal, they were never going to make it through bone. I'm Tendry. fairly certain that bone is stronger than metal to a certain extent. I'm not sure they would necessarily make it through, but I could be wrong on that. No, I mean you can saw through, saw through bone. That's that's actually where the same 
for Doctor's Sawbones comes from. Yeah. Um, but they were the weakest of weak saw sorts, you know. The sort of thing that you pick up for pick up for one dollar ninety nine from JC Penny or wherever. They they weren't especially good saws, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean let's face it, the guy didn't put much thought into it. He went to Targets and picked up a couple. Very much so. And I mean oh. I I think what was most interesting with the saw with the original Saw film really was the fact that there were, you know, just the setup of it and the style of it that we'd never seen in any of this in any of the horror film prior to this, really. Um, you know, we we give credit to New Nightmare for bringing us the um, for bringing us the Scream franchise, but I don't think we'd ever seen anything like Saw before Saw even came along. No, I don't think we had. Um, and again, as you say, it. it Invented the whole new subgenre of the torture porn, which of course gave rise to the likes of um, likes of Eli Roth, with um, with Cabin Fever, and what a wonderful film that is. Cabin <laughs> and, um, what what was the one where they go over to? Like, is it Hostel. Germany on Hostel? Yeah, that piece of shite. Now there's actually a, there's actually a story behind that, and it is based on. Kind of something Eli Roth had seen. I can believe uh, there probably was, but in terms of what Hostel was bringing us in this twisted environment where you couldn't understand what was going on, there were just so many better films out there, and I don't. I mean, I. I I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to say about those, to be honest with you. Right, okay. So, yeah, I think that, um... <sighs> you see, I don't know how much we should go into the the genres as such, because I don't want to take up... We've got so many films we could possibly cover, and if anything, I think it's probably worth doing a second part to this as well. Because, you know, we, we've barely even scratched the surface, and I've got so many more films that I want to talk about. Um, so... Let's just let's just briefly move away from America and go east. And I think the first film that I would personally like to bring up is Ring. I knew you would go with Ringing because <laughs> it's every, I think it's everyone's favorite J horror. Absolutely. Um, and of course, it was the first one really to get the, the Hollywood remake treatments. For better or worse, but yes. Yeah. Uh, nothing against Naomi Watts. She's a very capable, fine actress. But let's face it, any time you've got the word remake attached to any movie, you're just going to lower expectations immediately. Let's very much. that out the way straight away. Because you just know it's not going to stand up to the original. No. I mean, if somebody said to you, Oh yeah, with the remake of Scissors and Kane. Oh the first thing God! You th- yeah, just no, no. You think is this is going to be an absolute pile of shit? Yeah. Um, like it or not, with remakes, reboots, reimaginings, whatever you want to call them, nine and a half times out of ten, it's a pile of shit. Very much so. Um, I mean, I think Ring was 
one of those films that really took the world in terms of Western civilization by surprise. I don't know if Ring, Ringu, Ring, whatever you want to call it, the original Japanese version, I don't know if the original Japanese version ever made it into general syndication in terms of cinema releases, but I remember watching this on Film 4, when Film 4 was still credible, um, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and being absolutely terrified of it, especially by the end of it. So much so that I do believe I actually unplugged my television. Uh, <laughs> I think we probably had the, fir- the, the same first screening. <laughs> that's, that's my memory of, of the original as well. Is watching it very late. And let's let's get this right, folks. If you're gonna watch a horror movie, do not watch it in daytime. <laughs> you have to be full night, lights off. Yep. And it's gotta be dark. So what was it, you think, about Ring that did get to us so much and was so impactful for us? I, I don't know, because, it, again, it's not anything particularly about it, apart from its atmosphere, its tension. You know, it doesn't really... It builds up a lot of atmosphere and tension yep. without without doing very much at all to do it. It doesn't need kind of these these big scary monsters jumping off the screen. If it had gone that direction it would have quite frankly failed. Absolutely. It, it's just a it's an effective story and very very effective acting as well in the original Japanese version. Yeah. In that, yeah. it just builds up tension. Are they going to escape this 72-hour curse? How are they going to do it? I, I, are, they, are they even going to figure out what how to lift the curse to begin with? I mean, yeah. I, I've not seen the American remakes. Um, I'm kind of tempted to. Um, me and Derek were talking about seeing um, Rings and then watching the Ring Trilogy, the American Ring Trilogy, and discussing it at Halloween later this year, just because neither of us have seen it, neither of us really wanted to see it, but you know what, what the hell, let's give it a go and see how truly bad it is. Derek is not especially a horror fan, I am well into the Ring franchise, um, you know, I, I I bought the trilogy, I bought the books, I love the books, the third one was a bit twisted, but it was all very, but it was very good nonetheless. The, the first Ring movie, the American, I have to obviously make that discernment, the American Ring movie, the first, it wasn't a terrible movie mm. by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't, wasn't a great movie. It's not, you know, it wasn't ever going to win any, any major awards. No. But it wasn't a bad movie. Um, in the way some some remakes can be, most the, remakes can be. The question um, is, did you watch Ring the Japanese on DVD? No, I watched I watched it on film four. Ah, uh, so you never you, did you never see the uh, you'd never seen the extras on the Ring DVD then? Unfortunately, no, I can't say I have. Well, 
the reason I ask is because on the extras of the of um of the Japanese ring, you have the option of watching the cursed video, um once you've seen the film. And before it starts, it says the directors, writers, and producers of this film take no responsibility for any actions that you may suffer from watching this film. You do so at your own you do so at your own risk. Now I know yeah. it's fake. I know it's a story. I saw the film multiple times before. I read the books. I knew it was a story that was created by Koji Suzuki. I knew that Sudoku wasn't oh not Sudoku, sorry, whatever her name was wasn't about to pop out of my TV and scare me half to death and kill me in 48 hours, but still, in the back of my mind, I thought, I don't know if I want to watch this. Do you know, do you know, what, do you know what it is? Um, I had the same thing when I first watched Candyman. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I remember, I, remember I, was, I think I was 14, 15, and film four had a double bill, and it was Candyman, followed by, I think it was Night of the Living Dead. Oh God, what a night! Yeah, and it was Halloween. Was, um... I was staying up late that night to watch these movies on my own. Yeah. And I remember kind of in the break between movies, going to the toilet. Now, in my old house, between the living room in the bathroom was a large mirror oh oh shit so I stopped and I got to four Candyman's oh, and stopped I started up and I went no I'm not doing it <laughs> <laughs> I, I seem to remember something similar in an episode of um, the X-Files where they were um, where they were chanting um, Bloody Mary into a window mm-hmm. and they're like one bloody Mary, two bloody Mary, and I'm not even going to continue. I don't want to continue. <laughs> um, you know. it, it's that it's that same effect that makes the ring so good at what it does. In that, you know, it's not going to happen, but you're just not entirely certain it won't. You don't want to risk it. Ultimately, you yeah. don't want to risk it. It's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not fucking with powers beyond my control, you know. <laughs> I mean, at least with, at least with Candyman, that was a feasible character who could kill you. This, yeah. I mean, I, I think the difference between from what I saw of the American remake and the Japanese version of Ringu, the Japanese one never really explains what killed you as such. And yeah. it never really explains how you could get away from it. The only thing it said was, you know, you will receive a phone call in so many days telling you that you are going to die in so many days. And then at the very end of Ring, you see what the actual circumstances are when Sudoku comes out of the TV and scares you half to death. Um, and... I don't know. I mean, the, the TV show Castle did a mm. kind of reimagining of of the ring in that they were having these, these people die in, in unexplained circumstances with these horrified looks on their faces. And, of course, it turned out to have a very 
discernible explanation as to, as to why he died in such a way. Um, that was grounded very much in the real world. But the, the character in, in the show, Richard Castle, he's a mystery writer. Right. He's never lost his sense of disbelief. So he's, he's kind of going, well, what if it is, a, what if it is this serial killer returned from the dead? <laughs> uh, so he kind of, oh, 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 he's kind of disappointed every time he finds out it's just a person behind it. Oh, that that's got a real world explanation. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Ring really is the most prominent um, J horror film out there. I. I mean, obviously there were there were lots of films before Ring. There have been multiple films after the Ring. Um, you know, I'm I'm just trying to I'm trying to think of some off the top of my head. Um, things like um, the, the main one that springs out to my memory is um, is Dark Water, but I know that there've been multiple others, and I know that there've been multiple versions of Ring. Um, you've got Ring One, Ring. You've got Ringu, Ring Two, Ring Three, Ring Birthday, Ring Zero. It just goes on and on and on and on, and then of course you've got you've got the ones that aren't Japanese but are Korean. You've got the Jap- the ones that aren't Japanese but are Chinese, and it's actually a very difficult in in a way it's a very difficult franchise to follow, because you could quite easily go into a, into um, HMV or wherever it happens to be open these days, pick up the Korean version of Ring, thinking it's the same version as the Japanese one, and you come through a completely different film, and you'd be entirely disappointed, and you really don't know what you're watching. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if it's because copyright seems to be almost a suggestion in um, the Eastern world, for us, um, you know, than in the Western world than an actual law. They seem to just be able to get away with um, copying everything for whatever reason. And I don't know if that's got something to do with it, but it just it's got been, lost. It could be a bit of both. Um, I mean, you've got, obviously, again, you've got films like Jew on the Grudge. Oh, of um, course, yeah. Which, again, seems to be very kind of fluid in who, who actually owns the rights. Um... And that have kind of unexplainable um, origins. Uh, I'm trying to, trying to think what to say on top of that. Um, as you say, copyright in the, in, the, in the East seems to be kind of just a loose kind of suggestion <laughs> rather than anything firmly held in the law, where it's obviously, you know, in the Western world, if you steal my idea, I'm going to sue the shit out of you. Yes, very much so. <laughs> now, we were talking about um, J-Horror, and this is going to be at least a two-parter, because there's so much more that both Mike and I could cover. But I think what we're going to finish this on is just talking about why J-Horror itself is so... I think a little bit better than American horror. Why J horror has made an impact on Western civilization, and what we think it has to offer over American films. So that was a bit of a long list. Okay, Mike, why do you think J horror has been so effective in comparison to what we're used to seeing? 
I think it's because um, because because their beliefs and superstitions are so much different to ours. Mm. Um, we're not used to them. You know, they, they kind of take us by surprise. And we don't see where it's coming from. Whereas with with Western horror, it's always a tangible thing. There's always a reason, if you will. There's always the boogeyman. You know, we've about our, our, if you will, movie villains. There's always a Michael Myers, a Candyman, a Freddy Krueger, a Jason Voorhees. There's always a tangible, real-world reason behind it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember one of the things I was most fascinated about, having watched um, episodes of The X-Files, is there was a particular episode called Hell Money, and it mentioned something, and I'm going to get crucified for saying this wrong, but I believe it was in China, um, called a Festival of the Hungry Ghost, and they put what they called hell money to discourage evil spirits coming into their homes. And I always been, remember being fascinated by this, and in fact, so much so, and this might be me being a bit naive or almost a bit offensive towards the community in general. But I remember the first time that we went to um, a, you know, a, a Chinese supermarket and wanting to see if I could actually buy hell money purely on the basis of this episode of The X-Files. They, the Japanese seem to have this amazing culture for ghosts that we this, this Chinese, don't have. Hell money is Chinese, it's it is not Chinese, Japanese. isn't it? Yeah. The, the, the Chinese and the Japanese, and indeed the Korean, seem to have this mythology that we just don't seem to have in this country for whatever reason. And I mean, that, that that's an entirely different episode. We could talk about ghosts, you know, but another time we really wanted to. But why, why do you, in terms of breaking into the Western market... We've already said that the ring had an impact, but and if I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself here, but do you think it's because we've almost got bored of what was being produced from Western cinema and Western horror that we've wanted to branch out and say, okay, let's let's go somewhere different. Let's try and find somewhere different. I think I think we have. I think I think if you. You put it if you put it into kind of simpler terms, um, you know, it's it's you can't get bored of eating the same meal over and over again. If you have steak, if you have steak for dinner every day, it's not going to be quite as special. Yeah, we it loses something. So I think we need to branch out our our tastes a bit. And kind of embrace newer ideas, which I think is what is what J horror does, because we've been brought up with Western beliefs and Western superstitions. These kind of these beliefs from the from the East take us by surprise, and things like there was a horror movie released last year called The Woods. Oh yeah. Uh, it was heavily criticized. Was it the woods or the forest? I think it was, it was heavily forest. criticized because it was based on 
a real a real thing. I seem to remember, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you and I actually had a discussion about this over Facebook. Because um, I think I I think I commented the fact that I didn't think that creating a franchise on something that is so sad. I thought that was. I wasn't comfortable with that. I wasn't comfortable with it either, to be quite honest. I mean, I can understand why, in a way, people would create it, because it's, it's going to sell tickets. And let's face it, that's why people are in this business, are in that business, is to sell tickets. Yeah. And there's, there's, no, there's no horror more tangible than that that's actually happened in real life. Which is which is why we have a continuing fascination with serial killers. Um, like, um, we we touched on this earlier. The likes of Ed Dean and uh, John Wayne Gacy and all these characters that that so much more tangible than any hot horror movie um, villain can be because they, they've been real people I, th- I think that's, that's why people got so uncomfortable about a movie like The Woods it's because it was a tangible horror movie for people who don't know what we're talking about um, just to give a bit of a, du- bit of a background here and I apologise if my um, pronunciations are entirely incorrect here, but, you know, I'm going to try my best. Okigahara, I think that's correct, is a forest that basically um, lies on the bottom of Mount Fuji. It's a very deep forest. It's a very dark forest. It's very dense. It seems to absorb sound, and it makes it very difficult for people to necessarily find their way back, and it gives a massive sense of solitude. Um, there's also rumours that it makes compasses go haywire or false, for whatever reason, I can't really explain that. But the main thing that really is about this forest is it seems to be a place that an awful lot of people go to commit suicide, and because it is so dense that they're probably never going to be found sadly there is the job of someone who has to go around and searching for the bodies yeah and there are signs all over the place basically saying look things can get better call this number get help for the love of god get help we don't seem to have something like this in this country thank god and to me, there making is, I mean, that into there are places like it around the world. If you if you really look in, into it, there are places like that around the world. Yeah, uh, call them suicide hotspots. Yeah, uh, I mean, where I, I I don't really, I mean, I don't really want to go down that line. To be honest, um, you know, it's it's it is a touchy yeah. subject. Um, Absolutely. Um, but we do have things like that in, in Western societies. I think it's just yeah. that we're a bit more... We're, we're not as comfortable talking about it as right. maybe we could be. We're not as open about it. So I think we kind of brush it under the carpet a bit. Yeah. Uh, because it is, it is an uncomfortable subject, and even talking about it now. Yeah. 
in in this sense, it's it's not really the nicest thing to be talking about, but it is it is a thing that we do have in our society. But I think this place has kind of gained infamy around the world. Absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, it it, it drew you know, and I won't go along. If I, in fact, let's just stop. Let's yeah. Let's just what? stop. Well, I'd like to ask you, Chris, is um, what's your what's your favourite scary movie? Oh, dear. What's the one film you can watch every time it's going to scare the pants off you, no matter how many times you've seen it? i got to say, as much as I love horror films, very few of them really scare me that much. I think the ones that did it were, were the likes of Poltergeist and probably Ring. But yeah. in terms of my favourite scary movie, I think it's got to be Silence of the Lambs. Oh. That's I, just... I think it's a, a, just a damn good film in general. Yeah. There are others out there that are glorious, don't get me wrong, but in terms of a film that grips you and keeps you on the edge of your seat throughout, I think Silence of the Lambs would win in that scenario. I, I really think it would. Seeing the interplay between Buffalo Bill, even though there isn't that much interplay, is just, oh God, it's just glorious. I mean, the, the, the thing that springs to mind is the classic... It puts the lotion on the skin or else it gets the hose again. And it just... Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the old Jasmine there, Chris. <laughs> I've never done uh, that. I don't have a hole in my flat. <laughs> I don't have a woman at the bottom yeah. of it so I can make a suit. I believe you. Many wouldn't. But, um... I think for me, the film that all is the film that always makes me jump, mm. and there's only one scene of it, so it's not exactly the whole film. Um, an American Werewolf in London. I've never seen that, you know. Have you not? But there's there's one particular scene, and I won't, I'll try not to spoil it for you. It's a dream sequence, right? Um, and the, basically, it's to give a bit of a background on the story. Two American students are hiking through the the Yorkshire Moors, uh, and are told, you know, don't go on the moors, stay on the road. And uh, of course, they end up going on the moors. Whereupon they're attacked. They're attacked. They're attacked by a werewolf. One of them is killed. The other one lives and carries the case of the wolf now it's in the build up to his first transformation yeah he's played by these these nightmares and he in the in the dreams he's kind of he's running through the woods and in one particular dream he comes upon a hospital bed and he's in the hospital bed Working on himself, right? And this is this is where I have to say spoiler alert because um, 
Well, in fact, don't tell me much more. What I'll yeah. do, I'll get hold well, of it before we do the second part, and then we can talk about it more. Yeah, because that, I mean, that, that scene scared me when I first saw it as a kid. Still scares me to this day, even though I know it's coming. I know exactly at which point it's coming. It, it, it will, it'll have me reaching for the for the Andrex. <laughs> Blimey! Sorry, yeah. d- a dirty thought just said to my head then. <laughs> um, you thought? Yes, but let's not go there. That's not this podcast. <laughs> Even though it is Valentine's Day. No, let's just stop. Let's just stop. Right. Um, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, we've done an awful lot of talking today, much more than I thought we would. And, I, you know, as I said to you before, Mike, I think we've barely scratched the surface, to be perfectly honest with you. I think we yeah. could probably go for another hour and a half, and we probably wouldn't have run out of things to say. So I think it's probably a good time to to, uh, to take a pause, um, come back to this, and discuss the genre just a little bit more and see what more we want to talk about. Maybe we can pick it up as a Mother's Day special. Yes, we could, <laughs> couldn't we? We could talk about um, we could talk about <gasps> Carrie and Dalton and um, oh god, I can't remember the other film. There's there's another one, but yes, we can certainly do that. Um, but yes, this has been Sunday afternoon cinema. Although it's not Sunday afternoon, it's actually Tuesday because it's Valentine's Day. Uh, no, thank Sorry. It is. It is. <laughs> um, this has been an Iconochromatic pro- um, podcast. Um, please check out Iconochromatic to listen to other podcasts that we have done, both for Sunday Afternoon Cinema and um, me and Derek's latest releases podcast. Um, for those who are listening either today or later or at some point, we will be doing a Valentine's Day special, which is actually about love's film, love stories. So if you want to hear um, me and Derek talking about love stories, we would love to have you. Um, other than that, thank you for listening, and we will speak to you again. And thank you very much, Mike. And remember, folks, the truest way to a girl's heart is directly through the ribcage. <laughs> and on that note, thank you very much. <laughs> Good night. This has been Sunday Afternoon Films with me, Christopher Windsor, on the podcast network Iconochromatic. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.